0: At the end of the day, we all probably want to talk about politics with some other people that want to talk about politics, and <laughs> this gets it gets it out, right? So, yeah, it's, it's just the equivalent
1: of screaming into a pillow. It's an intelligent <laughs> screaming into a pillow. Uh huh. Oh, really? Starting the podcast
2: now? Yeah, I, I started recording 14 minutes ago.
1: Okay, so we're in like we can just kind of like use this as the foreplay, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah, r-
2: real quick, wow. for those of you new to the podcast or have been with us since the beginning, that new voice that you hear is Tim Ackerland. So, Tim, if you could just say hi, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hey
0: everybody, I'm Tim. I am a political science and economics major or degree from uh New York University, really into politics uh, and love intellectual discussion and really making it civilized again and really based in the evidence and the logic uh, and cutting through all the emotion and the toxicity of today. So really excited to be part of this podcast to to help you all uh, sort through that same discord that we are experiencing in our politics today to get back to real intelligence based discussion. Uh, So thank you guys for having me.
2: We're Absolutely, hoping to have you often. So, who wants to? Uh, I've actually I haven't watched any news lately. Um, <laughs> that must be nice.
0: Wait, what? What
2: what I miss? to
0: watch the Yeah, there was an, ele- <laughs> an election.
2: <laughs> oh, like last week oh yeah election day was last week that's right that's right what happened last tuesday you
0: know, election week was last week
1: oh oh <laughs> yeah. longest week of the longest year
0: yeah the most okay. was, the most tv i've watched in years
1: <laughs> it, it was a it was an unproductive work work week for me for sure Absolutely. CNN on mute on the background all the
0: time yep. mm-hmm. but uh to run through the results if we want to do that um I mean, obviously, the biggest news story is that the presidency was decided, and Donald Trump is a one term president, which is a rarity in um, U.S. politics. Joe Biden currently has 290 electoral votes, more than the 270 needed to win the election. We're still waiting on about three states. Joe Biden is possibly likely to pick up Georgia 16 more electoral votes, so he might finish at 306. But at least right now, Joe Biden has secured the presidency.
2: I mean, that's honestly pretty incredible, considering the the precedent that's set. I think the coolest thing of of this election is just the sheer mass numbers of people coming out and Mm -hmm. and voting. As of right now, we've got 146 million, Mm -hmm. give or take, people coming out to vote. And I don't know the total number of registered voters in the United States. The total number of votes cast anticipated by Bloomberg is probably 157 million to 165
0: million. Yeah, that would be the most in uh, US history we're at 145 million votes right now last election was 129 million so we're talking you know of course population growth and new voters and all but that's at least 16 million new voters or more votes that's amazing
2: it really is the second highest watermark uh in the past was when 62.2 percent of voters came out and voted in 2008 when barack obama won his first term in office Oh, wow. Before that, it was 60.2%, and that was in 2016, or below that. That was third. yep.
0: We've had record and turnout these many past elections.
2: This is the, the fourth highest since 1972, um, and that was 58.6 in 2012. So definitely not on an upward trend. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah, it is. it is. It's pretty cool. I think one of
1: the things about this election, before we get into... Our thoughts on the Trump reaction to it and like what it, the context and the, the history and the future for the country. One of the key points that I think is really important is that the balance of power looks like it's not going to shift terribly far to the Democrats. And we can have like discussions about what that means. But I mean, at the moment, the Democrats lost seats in the House. The Senate's basically going to be decided by the Georgia runoffs. And I, I don't know how long Georgia's had this law. Maybe Tim can speak to this, but it looks like you need to have 50% of the vote for their Senate elections or you have an automatic runoff. Is that correct?
2: That's right. You have to have a majority, not a plurality.
1: Right. So it looks like those two Georgia runoffs are coming down the pipe for January which are definitely going to be hotly contested. There's going to be money coming from both parties all over the country, but I'm not particularly confident that the Senate is going to go blue. Like, I wouldn't bet on that. And if it does go blue, it's going to be, like, the, by the slimmest of majorities. So I've kind of been nice. using that as, like, a point with people I know to point out that, like, hey, you know, all those scary, terrifying things that evil Joe Biden was going to do, he's probably not going to have the Senate. Even if he wanted to repeal the Second Amendment, which there's no evidence he wants to, it's not going to happen with the gop in the senate.
0: no, i mean he absolutely doesn't want to and there's no way it could happen <laughs> under any normal circumstances to actually have an amendment passed, the amount of work that has to be done, the amount of support there has to be for it. it's just
2: it's incredibly difficult yeah. for for those of you listening who who maybe don't know how like how much you need to pass an amendment, you need to have is a two thirds majority in the House and the Senate plus thirty-four out of fifty states agreement? I thought it was or thirty-four states.
0: Yep, yep, you're right. It's so it's the US Congress, a two thirds majority in both Senate and the House, or a national convention on the application of the legislatures of two thirds of the states.
1: Meanwhile, we can't agree we can't agree that giving money to people during COVID is good. Right. And I think There's been so much hype about this election, and there's been a lot of fear mongering about what a Biden presidency means. And like I've had to tell people, no, Joe Biden is not a communist. No, there's not going to be a one party rule in this country. No, there's not going to be gulags for conservatives. Like these are things people believe. I guess if you get to that point, like yeah, you're not going to believe that kid who tells you otherwise, but. I'm hoping that some people are still going to at least see like conservative majorities in the Supreme Court and the Senate, and you know rest a little bit assured that this isn't you know turning into Castro's Cuba overnight, which a lot of people on the right really seem to fear.
2: So I heard an interesting statistic today. During the the exit polls, as voters were leaving the polling booths after the election, they were asked, "Did you vote for a candidate or did you vote against a candidate?" And one third of respondents so that they voted against a candidate. And I think that that's really a flaw of the of the two-party system and something that we've seen be really a a con of of the system that we've grown to utilize. I mean really since I think it was really since that Rutherford B Hayes and Tilden election where it was so hotly contested. Either that or maybe it was John Quincy Adams and, and Andrew Jackson. But it was one of those two elections that really we were kind of a single party voting for like who we believe the best candidate to be at that point in time in our nation's history. And since then, we've had this two-party dichotomy. And over time, it seems to really have gotten extremely divisive. And we've seen that a lot. It's, hey, this is what's going to happen if, you know, Donald Trump is elected. He's going to have all these racist policies. He's going to ruin the environment. He's going to drain our schools of, of resources. And if Biden gets elected, well, he's a socialist and he's going to, implement communist ideals, and he's going to raise all of our taxes, and we're not going to be able to afford food for our families. In all honesty, like those are the extremes. Those are like the absolute extremes of the spectrum. And if we can figure out a way, you know, Biden's had this call for unity, and if we can find a way to agree on what the problems are and work together to solve them, that's going to be huge. There's this
1: trend towards conspiratorial thinking that tim and i were mentioning earlier that i think kind of stonewalls any appeals to the center i don't exactly know like when this started to become a dominant feature in american political life like i know conspiracy theories have always existed throughout history i know we want to talk about pandemic conspiracy theories at some point and that's going to be a chance to like dive into like the human psyche but it it seems like The more conspiracy theories you believe, the easier it is to dismiss any calls for unity. And I think that's like one of the most challenging aspects of this. Like, how do you get to somebody who believes that Democrats stole the election? How do you get to somebody who believes that Joe Biden is a literal communist? How do you get to somebody who believes that everyone in the GOP is a racist? Like, there's that, I think, is going to be a deciding point in the next couple of years for the health of the country because you can you can say platitudes up the wazoo about calls for unity but if people literally always will opt for the craziest and fantastical explanation it's just going to fall on deaf ears
0: the polarization has caused us to always want our way and no compromise and yet like out the other side of our mouths we say like oh we need to you know mend the bipartisanship or mend the polarization and you know make progress in this divided government but no one wants to give up anything when we say oh let's have incremental progress so many on both sides will say absolutely not we're going to demand the purest of our values it's like what is the more meaningful or possible practical way to inch forward towards your goals and values
1: One of the things that's been kind of eating at me is, like, all of the stuff about voter fraud. Like, we we did our episode about mail-in ballots and how Ryan and I believe that's pretty secure based on what we talked about in that episode. So we're not going to, like, dive into some of the contexts of how that's been used. But I'm just, like, amazed at how many people, honest to God, think that Trump got the election stolen from
0: him in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Even though... I mean, almost none of his lawsuits are actually about voter fraud. They're about technicalities and things like that, or that, you know, a few ballots shouldn't apply. But there's I don't think any of his lawsuits actually allege tens of thousands or millions of ballots are fraudulent. But yet he's talking it
2: as though that's the truth. And that's the issue is that he's portraying these lies as larger than they actually are. And that's, I think that that's, what's making them lies is that there might be technicalities and there might be a handful of ballots here and there that weren't caught by the nonpartisan election officials and that made it through the incredibly rigorous process of comparing mail-in ballots to voter record, mailing addresses, making sure that the people are alive. You know, going through this process to certify and verify every single mail-in ballot that that comes through the system. Uh, that's why it takes so long to count those votes. Yeah.
1: I think going back to what we said earlier, the things that I've been mulling over about voter fraud aren't necessarily for the people who believe that the election is getting stolen from Trump. Because I think you're kind of a lost cause at this point. I just kind of want to give people. The things they need to refute that, or at the very least stop it from spreading. And I think one of my biggest pet peeves is it's never consistent, right? Like, and that's a key hallmark of conspiratorial thinking. It's never consistent. It's, it always just warps to what the person who believes in it needs at that time. So here's an example I went out and got grabbed a coffee yesterday, and I'm, you know, in line, masked up, and these two girls are sitting behind me and they're talking. To each other, and they're remarking that, you know, they're they're Republicans, and they're just complaining how they don't feel safe talking about the fact that they support Trump at work, and then they start talking about how all these ballots are coming in for Biden in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and they're just convinced it's fraud. And I am down in the central Texas area, which is you know a, a bluish area of the state, but it can be pretty purple at times, and I'm just sitting there thinking, like, okay, these women believe Trump is so unpopular that I cannot talk about him at work and let people know I'm a Trump supporter. At the same time, they're also saying, so but why are you, why is he losing all of these votes in Michigan and Pennsylvania? It must be fraud. And there's no connecting the dots of I'm in a purple area of a red state. And I don't feel comfortable saying I support Trump because so many people don't like him. Why can't you apply that same logic to a swing state? Especially when he only won Michigan by 10,000 votes and Pennsylvania by like 40,000 in 2016. Like, There's no connecting the dots and thinking, gee, if he's not popular in central Texas right now, what makes me think he's gonna be any more popular in Michigan and Wisconsin? And I don't think it's about asking those questions. I think it's about just complaining that he's losing.
2: That's what they want. Yeah, and I mean we've seen in the past from him that he's a sore loser. And it's not something that I mean, to be fair, he's really had a lot of experience with. Anytime that he has lost or shown that he's been behind, like even I think he called for voter fraud because he lost the popular vote in twenty sixteen. Yeah. It's a it's a pattern with this guy. And people don't see the pattern. And and that's the thing that I don't
1: get. Like the man has lied about things as inconsequential as the percentage chance of victory Nate Silver gave him in 2016. Like there's audio of him coming out and saying 538 gave him like a 5, 6% chance when the the last forecast is a 29% chance. Like he lies about things as inconsequential
2: as that. So I would like to say like it's pretty easy to trash Trump and it's pretty easy to point out all of his flaws, all of his lies. But we do have to remember that Almost 71 million people voted for this guy. And I don't think it's because all these people are racists. No. And I don't think it's because all of them think that, you know, global warming isn't a real thing. No. Like I think it's really because they believe in the Republican ideals of hey, like we want low taxes, we want to keep our money here, we want to keep our business here, and we want to keep manufacturing in the United States, we want to keep agriculture strong. Like there's a lot of Republican ideals that people vote for, you know, regardless of who's running for president on a Republican ticket. And the same can be said for the Democrats. Biden's been calling for unity and saying like, hey, I don't care if you're a red state or a blue state, Republican, Democrat. He's like, I'm an American president and we need to start acting like one country again as Americans and figuring out how do we start to mend our relationships with each other? And I think the number one is starting that people who voted for Trump are not all bad people. And people who voted for Biden are not all good people. And vice versa.
0: Uh, I was just—I always think about how many liberals say that, you know, even though you're not racist necessarily, if you vote for Donald Trump, you know, of course there are many racists that voted for him, whatnot. Even if you're not, you saw Donald Trump and you said you're okay with his racial opportunism, his racist sentiments, his xenophobia and that's why you know we should hate even you even though you're not a racist we should despise all trump voters because they disregarded all of that as not important that his racist sentiments and speech was not important enough to say no it's not about taxes and it's not about immigration policy you know we have to focus on these uh character issues but at the same time, a lot of these people who do vote for Donald Trump and aren't racist, they might not even see like the problems of his speech because they're not exposed to people who are actually offended by that and who are personally attacked by his sentiments. And so it's very hard to like relate to that because these people aren't seeing it the same way. And, of course, it's on them to be educated and... And exposed to different view set uh, and diversity, but at the same time, they might not be thinking they're looking past racism. I don't know. It's just an interesting thought on how can we begin to
2: reason with those types of Trump voters? Yeah, I think you're right. And another like, insight that I've been kind of pondering over is that as you looked at the overall maps, you know, as CNN zoomed in on each state individually, like you saw, very blue areas and very red areas. And the big split was really among urban and rural voters. And I think that exactly what you were saying, Tim, is that you know a lot of people in rural communities are the ones that voted for Trump. And rural communities aren't necessarily known for being the most diverse of places. Right. And so if there's a place where you might not necessarily believe that racism is as big of a deal in your community because you're surrounded by a bunch of people who look like you, it's like, yeah. I mean, I can understand that point of view because you don't really see it on a, on a daily basis, whereas people in the cities, you see that play out.
1: I think there's a, a lot going on in what we're talking about here. And I agree with what Ryan's saying, because I think rural America and its future in politics could definitely be its own episode, because I think Ryan's right that that divide is getting cataclysmically large and will need to be healed at some point, or at the very least lessened. I'm going to like walk back a little bit to something that Ryan said earlier and disagree a little bit. I agree that not all Republicans are racist or misogynist or xenophobes. I would like to point out that I think politically the biggest appeal to Trump for a lot of people wasn't his policies. It was that cult of personality. So I don't necessarily think that the Republican Party is just going to kind of default to what it was with McCain and Romney with Trump leaving office. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of good people who voted for Trump and lean, lean right. And I get that. My thing is that like, I think the Trump brand is still going to stay. Like, I don't know if it's going to be the focal point of the Republican party, but if he came out in 2024, I'm pretty sure he gets the nomination. I I, I think against Cotton or Nikki Haley or Kasich or, well, I mean, Kasich, I think, supported Biden, so he's he's done as a Republican now. But mm-hmm. I, I think that that brand, that Trump brand, is still going to be really, really strong. And, and I don't think the policy is going to be the focal point of the votes. Again, I could be wrong, but I, I expect we're going to see Trump's, if not if not Donald, at the very least Ivanka, <laughs> running for uh, mm-hmm. president in the next 15 years.
0: Yeah, I, I could see definitely at least one of them, if not Donald. I mean... He'll be pretty old, but that doesn't really matter. <laughs> doesn't really count anybody out anymore.
2: He'll be the same age as Biden in 2024.
0: Right, exactly. So it doesn't really matter. But yeah, there is such a love of his personality by so many of just, they really think he shakes it up and tells it how it is. And and yet, of course, like many of us think he doesn't tell it how it is and he shakes the things up in the wrong way. But a lot of people just love that as opposed to a robotic politician. And so many people thought like Mitt Romney lost because he wasn't captivating and he wasn't engaging. He was just a wonk. And, you know, Mitt Romney was a really good guy, like, you know, for the most part. A lot of fundamental disagreements, I'm sure, on issues. But, you know, he doesn't have that personality like Trump.
2: I think back to like when John McCain was running. Like that was a Republican candidate. Granted, I was in, let's see, two thousand eight. I was in eighth grade and pretty much just listening. I mean, I was in the most Republican county in Wisconsin, listening to what my dad was saying, listening to generally more right leaning news sources, and I was also an eighth grader. So take this all with a grain of salt. But from what I remember, like I remember John McCain being like a really good, decent candidate. And I think if he were running now, I'd probably disagree with him on, on certain policy issues. But like going back and his, his concession speech went viral, watching that again, it was like, man, this guy was a leader. And he really did a good job at recognizing his position and having a respect for his role kind of in the public spotlight. And I think that's the the disconnect that we see today with with other leaders who are at the top, whether that's Trump. Or some of the other like further right Republicans or further left Democrats as well who are just like this is the way this is the way that it's got to be and this is where we're going. Whereas the answers I don't know I feel like in my opinion the answer is always somewhere in the middle. I think that like another
1: point that I think we're all we're both still mulling over is the idea of accountability versus understanding. Because Tim, I think at one point if I remember you said something on Facebook about how you think that liberals and the left need to kind of tone down some of the attacks. Cause it just kind of reinforces that behavior with the right. And I think that's like, what else is like the whole own the libs joke? If not mm-hmm. conservatives getting mad, that they're getting called racist and du- or sexist and xenophobic and dial- doubling down just to be obstinate. And like, there is a part of me that's like, you're acting like a child. If you got called racist and decided you're going to be more racist to offset that. But I, I, I guess I understand that like it is counterproductive and I get that and we shouldn't do that. But I'm still mulling that against where's the line? Like like where do you accept and agree and agree to disagree and like be civil with people and where do you have to come out and say, Dude, that was offsides. You're better than that. Like where is that line? I don't have I don't have the answer. And I think that line's gonna be different for different people.
0: Right. Well it's about being really, really careful and specific, right? Like Calling everything racist or every, you know, controversial police stopping video, you know, absolutely a racist act without any investigation or or whatnot. It just furthers that thinking by many Trump voters of like, you know, they view all cops as bad or they view all Trump voters as racist or whatnot. And it's like if we would just slow down and look at all the facts of every situation and be really specific you know, there wouldn't be such a you know, call to arms and running to our battle stations about every single issue. And the problem with it is that it's it's perpetuated by the two party system, as we were talking about earlier on. It's that when there's only two options, it is for or against at every stop, right? And so if if Trump is for something, I have to be against it if I'm on the other side, rather than having three options and, you know, sometimes agreeing, sometimes not. It, it's, it it allows that to propagate.
2: Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's a, a kind of a good transition to where do we go from here? How do we make these next four years better than the last? And how can each individual kind of make their mark on that? Because it's not going to happen magically by Biden being elected. It's going to take a lot of work by the American people. And if we don't, come together and start having these difficult conversations with each other and talk through in, in great detail about some of these topics, we're going to find ourselves in a very similar situation four years from now. So I don't know what, what thoughts you guys have on it.
0: What I've learned from the Trump presidency, um, now that it's coming to an end, is that presidents' words matter and presidents absolutely set the culture. Donald Trump was not a cause, as I've, I've, I've said many times before he was a symptom of the polarization that we've seen over the past, you know, many years and possibly decades. And that really kind of started with the rise of the internet and the rise of cable news stations and the ability for all of us to silo um, in our own ideological echo chambers and listen to just the types of news and commentary we want. And Donald Trump really took that and ran with it and brought it to the Oval Office. He set the culture of everything has to be for or against and we're going to attack each other personally. And it's not about the issues and the policy. It's, you know, about looking like a macho man and stuff like that. And so I think, you know, while it is up to us as individuals to push back against polarization and stop listening to the echo chambers of the internet and TV news, a lot will hopefully be solved by the culture that comes out of the white house. You know, hopefully Joe Biden fosters that we'll have to see of course he's two two months out from starting even but i hope that it's a top-down effect um and that we all start to get the the message and but you know there's there's so many things counting against us as a culture
1: i feel like every time we do an episode my brain just kind of like goes to like oh wow we raised this really interesting question that's connected to this and we don't have enough time to answer it but maybe we can mark it for a future episode i think an episode about rural america is going to be key. What i mean by that is whenever i've gone online and like read through reddit or blogs or facebook comments and like heard people like say why they they liked trump a lot of times it comes back to rural america or being like a blue collar white person and you know feeling like the opportunities are gone that your town is dying the the factories left And Hillary just could not speak to those people and often pushed them away when she pointed out that jobs, those jobs weren't coming back. I mean, she was right, but that was a really effective soundbite that helped Trump dominate with working class men in the Midwest, particularly working class white men, although he did better with minorities uh, in this election than they did last time. I think that like what presidents put out from the White House is huge, but I think that like the only phrase that's coming to my mind is something along the lines of a house is rotting at its foundation. And I don't mean that there's something wrong with rural America. I just mean that like rural America is having a crisis. It's in economics, in the opioid epidemic, in just rising healthcare costs. costs. Like, if you're out in the middle of nowhere in this country, you are doing a lot worse than you were 20, 30 years ago. And that's due to a number of factors, but I think until there is some sort of policy that actively makes the lives of Americans better, I think that we're just going to keep seeing these populist candidates gain that sort of consensus out in rural America. And I think the inverse of that is what happens in inner cities in this country. I think that... Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter protests and riots this year were directly tied to the material conditions of people in those cities. And I don't know if they would have been as bad as they were if COVID hadn't happened and people were unemployed and living paycheck to paycheck or had no savings in the bank when it happened. So I think that like the rhetoric is important, but I keep going back to like you know, happy, fed, protected people don't drive to a Walmart in West Texas and shoot 30 people for being Mexican Or smash a target's windows and steal $1,000 of merchandise. Like, I think the material conditions in this country
2: for a lot of people do improve before we can really heal our political rhetoric. I'd like to plug another podcast that I've been listening to. It's called How to Save a Planet. Mm -hmm. And it's with a leading climate scientist, uh, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, as well as uh, one of the co-hosts of Planet Money, uh, Alex Bloomberg. And... They, in their most recent episode, I uh, would highly recommend you go take a listen. Uh, it's How Much Does the President Matter for the Climate? And they talked to a Republican climate activist who actually went around on like a electric car trip. He visited 34 states, had 45-some interviews, uh, and he, he visited a town in, in small-town rural Utah, where it's basically a cold town, and he went in with one of their... I don't know if he was a a congressman or a senator, but somebody who was an elected official at the federal level, and they were so touched by the fact that somebody was coming and talking to them about how to handle the climate crisis and how can they be a part of the solution. And they were, they were thrilled that one of their elected officials actually came to visit them because it was the first time that anybody at that level had ever done so. And to me, it's just like, we've got to figure out a way to build empathy among all people. And I think that it's, it's the urban people's job to reach out and figure out a way to understand the rural perspective of things. Because, you know, urban people are the ones who generally produce the majority of the, of the media. They're the ones who are generally the ones represented in any sort of TV show. They're the ones that, that we kind of get all the information from. And it's really easy to understand their perspective because we're being inundated with it on a regular basis. And this is coming from three people living in urban environments. So this isn't necessarily us being able to, to help solve any, any problems here because we don't really have a lot of diversity in, in that sense. But if we can figure out a way to reach out and better understand the problems of those in rural communities and figure out what their perspective is on how to solve some of these problems, then I think we can figure out better solutions moving forward. I think
1: on the individual level the best thing that people on the left and center can do is prove to conservatives we don't despise them because the more I've been talking to conservative people ironically a lot of them have a huge victim complex because and I think I think a lot of it goes back to like the amount of change that's happened in this country in the last 30 years right like thinking uh, women should obey their husbands and gays shouldn't get married and abortion should be rover's way should be appealed. Those were relatively you know, common opinions in the early nineties and they're not anymore. So I think that there is a lot of this victim mentality with conservatives and they feel like they're getting attacked and getting called racists and Nazis and authoritarians and that, media is out to get them and that's another thing i see like a lot of people all what they fo- focus more on the, the liberal media actually than they do about policy which is interesting to me but i think we need to like with the conservatives in our personal lives like prove that we respect them and like we're going to listen to them while at the same time not finding when to compromise and when to compromise what i mean by that is i was listening to the election last night and i'm, I'm i don't want to butcher his name. Uh, Tim is it representative Clyburn?
0: Jim Jim Clyburn?
1: Yep. He, he was on CNN last night and he said uh, if I've always told people like if I need to take five steps to compromise with you I'll always take at least three or I'll take up mm-hmm. to three. And I and I think that's the way we need to do it like when you're talking to conservatives and you'll say something like I want police reform here's why and they are you know fairly pro police. I think that we have a, a duty to show them like we don't hate all cops, we don't hate all white people. We don't think that Every time a cop shoots somebody, it's completely unjustified and we're willing to like take those steps, but you got to give something up too. And I think that's kind of my rule of thumb. Like if, if someone is willing to take two out of those five steps, I'm willing to like have the conversation. But if they're not, I, I can't do it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so hard to fight back against because when you are in an echo chamber of whether it's your Facebook Meet, you know, friend groups or the the news you listen to, it just propagates that of like, well, they mean to fund the police. That means they want to, you know, just eliminate all police and put them all out of a job because all police are racist. And then you go and spread that that claim. But it's it really takes us to actually listen to one another and ask, well, what do you mean by defund the police? What do you mean by you know, like uh, letting the undocumented immigrants stay or why do you want to, you know, uh, build a wall and what do you think it will achieve and why do you want to do it? Just asking and seeking to understand, you know, it is that empathy at its core of seeking to understand one another rather than rushing to accuse one another.
1: Again, and maybe I'm just like coming up with a content library in my head as we do this. I would really love to talk about like the line between Acceptable and non-acceptable political discourse in the future, because like I've heard people I love say that they think birthright citizenship should be repealed because Trump said it should be, Mm -hmm. and and that's something that like as like a matter of personal principle I won't attack you for, but like I I think that's kind of fascist, and you know I can't say that to people because you can make them double down and make them think that like I'm this evil liberal who won't tolerate free speech, but I also don't want to normalize that opinion. And I and I don't have an answer of how to how to handle that. And I don't think
2: anybody does. And I think that's why we're here.
0: Yeah, I think like you're saying, like rushing to say somebody's a fascist or their opinion is fa- fa- fascism or fascistic, or whatever. It's about like avoiding the labels and just actually having the, the conversation. And I know that sounds easier said than done, I'm sure. But it's just, I think we really... We get somewhere when we are truly seeking to understand, rather than just seeing somebody of the opposing side and wanting to fight with them. And here's our here's our evidence for why you're wrong, rather than truly wanting to learn. But it's so hard; <laughs> it's, it's a really tough battle.
1: I, I think like that also goes along with like identifying who's a troll and who's not. Like who's who's arguing in good faith? Who like genuinely believes what they're saying? And isn't just trying to get a rise out of you or like is actually willing to like sit and have a civil conversation and who's like not able to, I think that's kind of a dividing line for me. Like there are conservatives I'm happy to talk to. And there are some people that like, it's it's a waste of our time and vice versa. I'm sure there's a lot of conservatives I know who have liberals they're willing to talk to and liberals they're not willing to talk to, which is
0: fair. Absolutely. No matter what side you're on, there are people that can be reasoned with and many people that cannot and that do not want to be, Uh, you know, having that discussion and wanting to sit down and understand one another.
1: I think my resolution for the next four years with Biden is to be accepting of everybody I know personally and offer them the mic to speak and discuss things with me and to be really, really uncompromising with politicians. I'm definitely willing to like hold people I know to a lower standard
2: than like people in the media and politicians at this point. I think that that's a, a great thing as well. And I think that that's one of my Biden resolutions as well. Kind of like that. I'm going to be inundating my local politicians with emails. Anytime I see them like pushing any sort of rhetoric mm. or like voting for something that seems to go against their constituents well-beings, like I'm keeping tabs and I'm letting them rip because I think that if we don't hold our elected officials to that highest standard, then they don't deserve to be there. Like, we're paying them a lot of money to do what they do. They need to be held accountable for those actions.
1: Well, and also they have the most impact, right? Like, you know, if I get, like, a family member to move from, like, far right to, like, center right, yeah, that's a personal win for me. But if you can, like, keep your local media and your local politician from going far left or far right, or at the very least, if they do have a certain political opinion, they're they're going to play within the bounds that we've established for this country, that's huge.
2: Well, I think that uh, we're going to have plenty of content to go over, over the course of the next four years, uh, heck over the course of the next 70 days. So we hope you stick with us. In the link of our last show notes, we actually posted a, a note that said, hey, if you want to you know, send us a question, send us some comments, some feedback, whatever you want, uh, you can actually follow that link in our show notes. And, and share a voice me- message with us. If it's good, we'll put it on, we'll respond to it. Yeah, we'd love to have some some level of conversation even though it's not, not as much a, a back and forth, but, but help us out, give us some topics to discuss and we'd be more than happy to to dive into greater detail with it. Well, hey, thank you, uh, thank you Tim, for joining. We Absolutely. hope to have you on again on a, on a regular basis if that's something that you're interested in doing. Uh, we can talk more after the show. As for everybody else, you can find us on Mist underscore information 2020 on Instagram. And we might want to clean up that, that handle as well, make that a little <laughs> bit easier for you guys to find. Uh, otherwise, we're available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. You name it, we're on it. Look us up. Thanks, everybody.